Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. President Putin is failing in Ukraine. His attempted annexations, partial mobilization, and reckless nuclear rhetoric represents the most significant escalation since the start of the war. And they show that this war is not going as planned. The war in Ukraine is once again front and center of everyone's minds. In one of the most significant escalations of recent months, Russian President Vladimir Putin and his army released a barrage of missiles earlier this week targeting civilians in Ukraine. It follows an attack on a key bridge connecting Crimea to Russia on Sunday. For Ukraine, the EU and Europe more broadly, the threat level has escalated. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent and your host of EU Confidential. Today, we're going to unpack how Europe is responding to Putin's escalations in Ukraine and get an update from our NATO correspondent and how the alliance is moving to provide even more support on the front lines. We'll also discuss some of the other issues being exacerbated by the war, from migration to the food crisis. So stay with us. But first, let's check in with Lily Byer, our senior reporter covering NATO, to get an update on how the alliance is reacting to these latest escalations. Hi, Lily, and I know you're, you're joining us from NATO headquarters. Hi, Suzanne. So look, Lily, what has been the reaction in NATO to these bombings this week of civilian targets uh, by Russia? I think that the targeting of civilians and civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, and in particular in cities where we haven't seen attacks um, in recent months, has really galvanized the allies. We've heard um, a lot of strong rhetoric from Capital saying that they want to boost support to Ukraine even further as a result of these attacks. And of course, NATO defence ministers are meeting. Anything concrete coming out of that meeting in terms of actual commitments? So there are two meetings happening. The first is of the US-led contact group, um, which is the venue where uh, ministers and senior military officials from around the globe, so not just NATO, but a lot of other partners, are gathering to discuss weapons and supplies for Ukraine. And then later on, what we have is a meeting of NATO ministers who are discussing their own strategic concerns, support for Ukraine as well, 
but also hybrid attacks, how to um, boost defense protection for critical infrastructure within NATO countries and so on. We also have Ukraine's defense minister, Reznikov, here in town in Brussels, and he is meeting with the NATO officials to discuss Ukraine's needs with a particular emphasis on air defense as a result of the attacks that we saw earlier in the week. And Lily, we heard from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg earlier in the podcast. You asked him specifically about this question, about NATO's air defence capacity and systems that Kiev is asking for. Are you expecting any further announcements in the coming days? Just over the last days, we have had two new announcements from NATO allies, uh, from uh, Germany and United States. So when it comes to air defense systems specifically, we heard from a number of Western countries this week that they will step up their assistance to Ukraine. For example, Germany sped up the delivery of an air defense system to Kiev. We heard announcements from the United Kingdom, from France, from the Netherlands, um, that they will help with uh, air defense tools. We also heard that the United States will continue providing air defense systems to Ukraine. These air defense systems are making a difference uh, uh, because uh, uh, many of the incoming missiles uh, were actually shot down by Ukrainian air defense uh, systems provided by uh, NATO allies. Uh, but of course, as long as. Uh, but the thing to really keep in mind that counts now is the timeline because Ukraine needs more air defenses now. Cities are under attack now. Critical infrastructure is being hit. But it will take time for some of these systems to actually arrive. We heard here in Brussels um, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. Uh, he addressed the press and he said that the aim is to create an integrated air missile defense system for Ukraine. But he acknowledged that one of the challenges will be that there are different systems being donated. So there will have to be training. These systems will have to be linked up. And he did say that this will take this will all take a little bit of time. But another thing to keep in mind is that ministers this week in Brussels are spending a lot of time talking about supplies and production because things such as air defense systems take a while to produce. Uh, countries are, of course, concerned about their own security, so they're not going to donate everything they have. And one thing that has been concerning a lot of policymakers throughout the Western Alliance is that the war has been going on for months now. No one was prepared for this sort of conflict. So stockpiles in a lot of Western countries are running low. They're low on, on ammunition and weapons, and they know that they simply need to produce more. But this also requires working with industry and sending a signal to the industry that there's demand also in the long term and that industry should feel confident boosting production. Very interesting. Of course, the other issue is the escalatory language we're hearing from Moscow about nuclear threats. Is that weighing on minds this week at NATO? Of course, I think uh, officials are worried about the nuclear rhetoric, even though a lot of them say that the risks are actually quite low. But we have heard from Western officials, and in particular from Washington, that they have been sending very clear messages, deterrence messages to Moscow, telling Russian officials that the consequences would be very severe if Russia chose to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine.
one of the other countries that's kind of facing that is uh, literally on the borders of this war is, is Moldova. Earlier this week, I spoke to the Minister for Internal Affairs in Moldova, Anna Ravenko, about some of the concerns following reports that Russia had breached Moldovan airspace earlier this week. What does it mean bordering with the war? It means that the first missile that is, you know, uh, shooted, it means that in maximum one hour we have already the effects at the border. And we, there is no time. There is no luxury of time to think, to assess, to test, to pilot. People are in need of immediate assistance. They need safety. They, uh, they expect us that we would uh, react very fast. Likewise, it's, it's also for us important to stay ready and to uh, identify any possible immediate threats of cross-border criminality that usually and unfortunately is associated with the war because it creates opportunities for transnational uh, crime. And we've been discussing also today about the possible threats of trafficking in human beings, of smuggling, of trafficking in arms, than drugs, and much more is associated, unfortunately, with this kind of phenomenon as, as wars. Likewise, the anxiety in the Moldovan society has increased in association uh, or as a result of the recent evolutions uh, of the military actions in Ukraine uh, with regard to these missiles. And that would equally could uh, trigger migrations from Moldova, the need for more efforts to ensure security in communities, on the roads, among various categories and groups of population. Thanks so much, Lily, for that really interesting insight into uh, the response to yet another very tense week uh, for Ukraine and Europe. Thanks, Suzanne. Just going to bring in there my colleague Jacopo Baragazzi to talk about a very different aspect of the war in Ukraine, and that is migration. Now, first, we're going to hear from European Commission Vice President Margarita Skinas. He was speaking at the Vienna Migration Conference earlier this week. I think that the unity of the 27 will stay. It is in our nature to have uh, complicated questions. You are a witness to that uh, very often. But I don't see any breach of this united front. I'm, I'm confident that at the end of the day, the EU, the West, will stay by the Ukrainian people and will do what it takes. And on a day like this, when Russian bombs fall on, on school children, on playgrounds. This is more timely and relevant than ever. This would be a crime for the European Union not to continue with our unconditional support in Ukraine. So, Jacobo, is the Commission Vice President right? Is Europe very united when it comes to welcoming these millions of Ukrainian refugees? On paper, yes. Then in practice, it's another problem. Meaning the European Union decided very quickly to use a legislative tool never used so far for the Ukrainians. It's called the Temporary Protection Directive. And this was pretty amazing in European terms that uh, the decision happened so quickly and that this directive that has been there for 20 years was uh, finally used in this case for the Ukrainians. And that was very quick, as you said, and it allowed them, it allowed Ukrainians to get into the EU, enter the labour market, 
get rights and benefits. So pretty quick, as you say. And now this directive has to be prolonged. And uh, from what we hear, the idea is to prolong it for another six months. And that's already an indication that uh, probably the appetite, uh, the unity is probably not so strong. Because before we were told that it could have been extended for 12 months, as now what we hear is for six months. Mm, interesting. And of course, you know, on the one hand, nobody wants to send the wrong message to Kiev. But on the other hand, all this amount of uh, Ukrainian citizens uh, reaching the EU, of course, uh, they are also a problem because the EU migration system is already overloaded. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues, of course, is we're coming into the winter. We've got these inflationary costs. We've got, I think everyone can accept that there's a labor shortage in Europe and they're qu- everyone is quite welcoming of the fact that we could have Ukrainians coming in, looking for work and working. But of course, there are pressures on housing and other resources in Europe. So let's see if that unity holds. I mean, another issue, um, Jacopo, is the latest developments we were hearing about earlier in the podcast about this escalation again in Ukraine. I mean, are there concerns now that that's going to have another uh, migratory impact? Yes, there is. Uh, and let me first uh, make a point that here they expect uh, anyway the Ukrainians that have reached the EU to go back once uh, the war uh, will be over. So the expectation is that uh, these numbers, these millions of Ukrainians that have uh, arrived in the EU will go back. But you're absolutely right that in this moment, with the last wave of bombings, the fear is that uh, actually more people, more Ukrainians uh, could be pushed out of the country or would flee because of this recent wave of bombings. Mm, Yeah, another wave of migrants potentially coming from Ukraine as they flee this awful attack by Russia. Another aspect of this is the the discussion and quite a fraught discussion about um, giving refuge to maybe Russians who are fleeing Vladimir Putin's regime and of course the conscription that's happening there now. What's the latest on that? The Commission tried to explain the guidelines and finding a middle way between the Baltic countries that have a very strong security fear and those like Germany who were more open to the idea of Russians fleeing the country because of their argument in this case is that these are people that can be opponents of Putin and cannot be left there. But this all discussion is much more complicated for many reasons. One of the reasons is not just the security aspect but also the aspect of the fact that in this case, since that uh, are mainly men who want to flee the military service, uh, this will be a different kind of migration compared to the Ukrainians that uh, yes. are usually women and children as the men go back to Ukraine to fight. Yeah. So uh, there isn't just the aspect of security, but also this other aspect. And then, you know, in terms of, boy, of rumors in town, just to explain a little bit the mentality and uh, when... Uh, a few days ago, there were problems. There was an attack against the electricity structure in Germany. An act of sabotage disrupted train travel across northern Germany on Saturday morning. All high-speed regional and cargo trains in the north of the country were interrupted for nearly three hours due to radio link cables being cut. 
Police said the sabotage happened in a Berlin suburb and in Herna in the west. The German rail operator said that the incident is currently under investigation, but there was no immediate information. There were rumors in town. Oh, you see, these are already the Russians that have arrived here. Of course, again, it's a joke. There is no evidence of that. It's just, again, something that has no evidence at all. But it just explains how much the prospect of Russians coming here is uh, actually a concern not only for the Baltic countries. And in fact, our colleague Matt Karnitschnik spoke with Ilva Johansson, the Home Affairs Commissioner, last week on the sidelines of the Warsaw Security Forum and asked, was there a fear about Russians entering illegally? So we have uh, very few reports on people trying to enter on false document and that is not any frequent uh, report on that. Uh, We have heard this, uh, the chief of Russia today, uh, saying that that Russia should be sending special uh, professionals to uh, admire the beautiful spires of Tallinn, for example. That was really, I should say, a threat uh, linking to the poisoning of um, uh, the scripples of Novichok. We have seen a Russian citizen that try to provoke Ukrainian refugees with the Russian flags and really being trying to cause unrest uh, in our societies. So we are not detecting uh, false documents at the borders. This is not a real problem. But of, of Russians that are present, there are also some examples of those trying to provoke or to uh, be part of the propaganda. And how can you? How can Europe really... Uh, protect itself against these kinds of elements because many of these people are already here. Well, what the recommendation I presented on the visa policy and on the policy for border guards is that now we are in a situation where the security threat towards the European Union has deteriorated. Yeah. Uh, with uh, the annexation, with the mobilization of Russia, but also with the attack on Nord Stream, even though investigation is still going on. So I should say that we are in a more, uh, the security threat is on a higher level. And that means that we need to mo- do more thorough security checks of people. Uh, before they enter into the European Union. And what I put also in the recommendation is that member states now, taking into account the higher level of security threat, should reassess also existing visas for Russians that are here or that might want to come here on existing visas. What more beyond vetting people when they come in, checking the visas, how much more can be done here? Or are we already A lot. at the limits? No, no, no. A lot can be done and must be done. I think that we we really need to realize that the biggest threat towards us today is Putin and Russia. And we need to act uh, accordingly to that. That means, of course, to vet or do the proper assessment of individuals and not being generous with uh, tourist visas. Being a tourist in the European Union is not a fundamental right, and, and we should be really restrictive on that. But, for example, we need to do much more when it comes to counter disinformation and propaganda. We have to do more when it comes to the cyber uh, resilience uh, the risk of, of cyber attacks. We must do, must do much more when it comes to protecting our critical uh, infrastructure, for example. So there are really areas uh, where we need to do more. And 
and maybe also the most important thing is that we have to stay united uh, because this is really where uh, Putin tries to destroy us is by putting in wedges between member states trying to weaken us uh, by uh, destroying our unity. And this is also an area that needs a constant focus, I should say, to keep united. Do, do you think that Europe has been uh, too lax in the past yes. on, on these fronts? Yes. And Jacopo, there's yet another crisis migration uh, looming. We've got, um, obviously, Europe is coping with this influx of Ukrainian refugees. And we're seeing, as we say, this unity pretty much holding in terms of offering refuge to Ukrainians. But there's also talk this week um, of a new surge in migrants coming through the Western Balkans route. So, Jacopo, this looks like it's going to be a topic of debate this week at the Justice and Home Affairs Minister's meeting in Luxembourg. What exactly is happening along this Western Balkans route? There was a surge of uh, numbers in the last month, and this was already uh, worrying. The element that, uh, if you want, is the more political is uh, the role of Serbia. Basically, uh, migrants can fly visa-free to Serbia and then from Serbia try to move uh, into the EU. And uh, this is uh, worrying for many reasons. And uh, there are uh, figures that uh, are not checked, saying that uh, Serbia is issuing something like 30,000 visas a month for uh, these migrants to cross uh, into the EU. But again, these figures are not official yet. Uh, and But this just explains uh, one of the key fears of uh, what Serbia is doing, which is, uh, is Serbia helping Moscow? because the Serbian president Vucic and General Serbia has always been very close to Moscow. Yeah, I mean, I know at the Vienna Migration Conference this week, there was a lot of talk about this. It's a big issue for those Central Eastern European countries like Austria, Hungary, etc., who are bordering the Western Balkans country. And we did see um, Commissioner Skinas visit Belgrade and the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen last week at the European Political Community held a bilateral meeting with the Serbian President. And the upshot seems to be that Serbia has said it will align its visa-free access policy with that of the EU by the end of the year. And we actually have a clip of Vice President Skinas speaking about this very issue, this uptick in migrants coming through Serbia. This appears to be now a real concern, this increase in migratory flows through the Western Balkans. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, the starting point is that we are seeing from January to now a significant increase of uh, irregular uh, migration along the Western Balkan uh, road. This is 186% up, so it's significant. Of course, this relates also to the post-pandemic mobility boom uh, that we're seeing across the globe uh, People want to travel, we have record tourism uh, season in the summer, but still this is a source of, of concern. So my, the, the reason of my presence on the ground was precisely to remind the family, because Western Balkans is already part of the family. It's not just uh, a, third, a set of third countries here and there, they, these are the family. That uh, being members of the family comes with uh, honesty, <laughs> trust and straight talk. So I reiterated our offer to continue supporting all Western Balkan countries very generously on border management, on reception uh, conditions for migrants, on what they need 
to support uh, their migration policy, but in exchange, we ask them uh, for a number of things that they all very uh, unreservedly would say accepted to do first, and very important. We need them to act on aligning their visa policies with ours. It's not fair for the European Union that the European Union has granted visa-free travel to the Western Balkans and individual Western Balkan countries grant visa-free agreements to third countries which are not visa-free with us. This is not very family and it has to change. And do you believe you've got that commitment now, particularly from Serbia, to align the visa-free regimes? Do they commit? Yes. And if I may say so, they committed at the highest possible political level, which is the president of Serbia. So I, uh, I take these commitments by heads of state and government very seriously. Yeah, it was interesting that the president of Serbia had just been to the meeting in Prague of the European political community, which just finished on Thursday, where migration was an issue and where he had a bilateral meeting with Ursula von der Leyen. So I think we can guess what was the topic of that uh, discussion. Let me, put it <laughs> let me put it diplomatically. When Team Europe plays as a team, we are unbeatable. Jacopo, where do you think things go from here? You know, we've had this very quick response by the EU to the temporary protection directive to allow Ukrainians to enter the EU, and yet as some kind of a comprehensive agreement on the migration pact. This is we've been talking about this for years, and it still seems to be far away. It is uh, far away. Uh, the war hopes that these. Uh, pact which basically would be finally an agreement that has never been reached since the migration crisis in 2015 on a new regulation for asylum across the EU. And the expectation was that this legislation, this pact, could have been made further progress during the next presidency, rotating presidency of the council, which would be Sweden. But now the political situation in Sweden doesn't give much optimism that Sweden can actually Uh, really rich a deal on this legislation. Because we have a new government there. In, because in, we have a new government there that would be with a far-right component. My point here is that migration, as usual, is a kind of uh, a submarine. It disappears from uh, the front pages uh, of newspapers and continually then comes back because of the lack of a solution. So in this moment, we have, on the one hand, the Ukrainians coming to the EU in, in millions. Uh, this debate on the visas for the Russians and the fear of security. There, there in the Balkans, we have uh, this uh, rise in, in numbers and the role of Serbia. Then in the south, we still have uh, uh, the issue of the migration coming from Africa. And uh, this time, uh, there was also migration uh, coming uh, from uh, an area of Libya that is controlled by Russia. So everything then, uh, it's all migration, but at the end, it's all Russia in this moment. Interesting thoughts. Thank you very much for that, Jacopo. Thank you. After the break, we'll be looking at another unintended consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that is the food crisis. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Earlier this year, shortly after the war in Ukraine began, our agriculture reporter, Eddie Wax, brought us this eye-opening interview with the head of the World Food Programme, David Beasley. What you can expect if this war moves on is going to be more than catastrophic in the fall. In the fall? Oh, yeah. You think we've got hell on earth now, you, you just get ready. Now that the autumn has arrived, we wanted to get a sense of whether Beasley's prediction had come to bear. So Eddie recently sat down with Matthew Hollingworth. He's the World Food Programme's country director in Ukraine. Everyone keeps saying how this is the worst crisis for for years, uh, worst global hunger crisis. I mean, I certainly think we have an unprecedented number of things going on, which is impacting the world's most vulnerable. Mm. So... You know, yes, the war in Ukraine, the interruption on the, the exports of food from one of the world's major um, growers, producers, and, you know, the impact of that interruption on the, on the world's markets. But we've also just seen the world spend $27 trillion on COVID uh, response, so the world's finances are not in a good place. We have wars affecting you know, literally hundreds of millions of people at this stage in terms of Afghanistan, Yemen, Ethiopia, continuing in South Sudan, the situations uh, across the Horn of Africa. We've got a drought in Somalia, parts of Kenya. You know, you add all of this up, the needs are vast. And obviously, you know, coming out of COVID and then having the invasion on the, on the 24th of uh, February and what's happened since clearly had this additional negative impact. So there's no question we've not, I don't think we've ever faced so many problems before. You know, the phrase perfect storm is overused, but really we've just had perfect storm after perfect storm after perfect storm now. A lot of people are saying now that, you know, after the this deal was reached between Ukraine, Russia, Turkey and the UN to reopen three of the the ports to export Ukraine's food. Today, there is a beacon on the Black Sea, a beacon of hope, a beacon of possibility, a beacon of relief in a world that needs it more than ever. The markets are calming down, that actually, you know, maybe this crisis can be averted. So there's a lot of positive signs about that. Obviously, we can get to whether the deal will hold in a second. But is there too much optimism, maybe? Because all these other problems that you've mentioned, the wars, the drought, you know, they're all, they're all still there. So I mean, that's it. This was one issue of many. Um, but in saying that, you know, confidence um, in markets, reduction in prices means that we can essentially help more people. Because when price, global prices come down in the global south... 
as well in more developed areas of the world, it means that our dollars can be stretched further and we can and our euros can be stretched further and we can help more people. So it is still very much a positive. We are, though, still seeing, even if the prices have reduced from this year, from the beginning of this year, and certainly the spike following the beginning of the war in Ukraine, they're still year on year higher now than they were a year ago. So there has been a small improvement. The Black Sea grain deal, we could look at it in an optimistic or pessimistic way, but where we stand right now, I mean, what do you see as the, as the percentage chance of the grain deal actually being renewed? Well, I, I am optimistic that it will be uh, renewed um, beyond uh, the end of November. 4.9 million tonnes have gone out to date and increasing more ships every day. We are, you know, I, I have a team in Odessa. I was in Odessa a few weeks ago. And yes, they've had unmanned uh, drones um, hitting Odessa in the last couple of days. I don't know where they were from, but there, there has been, you know, those, those impacts on, on the area and, and our staff have to Russia, have to hide. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, we know the direction they're coming. Yeah. I don't know where they where, yeah. where they originally made, but um, you know, and, and our staff have had to hide in in basements and, and and seek shelter. And then when the air raid sirens end, they go back out and and the vessels start being loaded again, and it, it continues. Again, I think it's very very important that the recipients of the food from Ukraine need to be part of the voice to continue. Um, you know, a strong voice globally to continue the initiative. And on the other side of things, I mean, on the, on the land borders, that was the main message from the Ukraine's agriculture minister here in, in Brussels to the, to the EU ministers, that he wants more investments to be made so that they can become permanent alternatives. I mean, we're still seeing like long queues on the borders and, and log- logistical problems. I mean, is, are those solidarity lanes ready to significantly like, step up if this grain deal doesn't happen to be renewed? Look, at the outset of this war, when the overland deliveries um, were the only means for Ukrainian producers to export, and they were incredibly important. They're still important today. They could become more and more important for the economy of Ukraine, but some very significant investments in the infrastructure, the transport and logistics infrastructure in Ukraine would have to be put in place. You know, you're fully aware of of the challenges. The, the, The railway gauges are different size, the road networks of, of Ukraine were always, from a logistics perspective, you know, based on commodities going out through the Black Sea or going east to their biggest trade partner of the past, Russia. Things have changed now. Ukraine is looking ever westward, looking towards Europe. And you know, it, it will only make sense in the future as, as Ukraine you know, follows its path as it would hope to membership of the European Union, that there have to be big investments mm. in changing that logistics network. So let's turn to the actual you know, situation in Ukraine. I mean, you, you arrived in, in May, so I'm just wondering, you know, has the situation, sort of internal food security situation in Ukraine calmed down a bit since then? Because back then there were cities, I mean, there are still cities you know, being besieged, but there was like Mariupol, mm-hmm being completely cut off from any sort of supplies, even WFP couldn't really get its supplies there. I mean, is the situation in any way better? Well, unfortunately, since the the invasion, you're seeing all of the indicators across humanitarian needs getting worse. We know that, you know, as a direct result of the war, 5 million people have become, more than 5 million people at this point, have become unemployed. 
You know, livelihoods are being decimated across, everywhere around the frontline areas. Poverty, according to the World Bank, has dramatically increased in terms of the numbers of people living under the poverty line from 2% prior to the war to over 20% today. The country lost 45% of its GDP in a matter of months. The situation is getting worse, not better. And unfortunately, that's, I mean, that, that's very you know, obvious in parts of the country which are uh, around the frontline areas. But it's also obvious in areas of the country which are, relatively speaking, far from the frontline because of the number of displaced. I mean, this is an unprecedented number in only a few months. 12 million people, more than 12 million people displaced from, from their homes. Mm. More than 4 million coming as refugees to mainland Europe, but still 8 million inside the country displaced. Displaced from their homes, displaced from their jobs, and reliant on some form of assistance to help them get through. And we have a winter coming. And this winter, I mean, according to the meteorology departments of various countries in this region, it's not going to be much worse than previous winters. But for families who are living in places where the gas has been cut off, the electricity has been switched off, you know, their residences are partially damaged, or their collective centres, if they've been displaced from their residences, are partially damaged. I mean, you know, people will suffer, and it will be an acute level of need that they face. So... Unfortunately, no, the situation hasn't improved. Um, it is getting worse. Um, we need to really focus on getting people through this winter. I mean, last week I was in Izium uh, Rayon, which is in Karkivska Oblast province. And, you know, we, we were in an area that up until a week before had been held by the Russian Federation. And, you know, the communities that we were meeting you know, they'd lost everything. There's, there's a lot of cattle farming in that area. All of the cattle had been killed. Um, there's a lot of farming in that area. The farming industry, infrastructure, the assets, the tractors, the combine harvesters, the silos had been destroyed. Um, the fields haven't been planted this season because there was active war in those areas. Mm. Um, I mean, the people there are not able to make a livelihood. Mm. And, yeah, they're, they're facing the uncertainty of a winter where... They don't have the heating that they would be uh, normally provided through the collective heating or gas or electricity um, capacity. You've got woods and fields which are mined or scattered with remnants of war. Mm. I'm painting, I mean, it's a pretty dark and dismal picture, but it is the reality for, for many people. And for some of them, we're going to be helping people who, who will have to evacuate, not because of the fighting, but because of the cold. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks to Eddie for bringing us that discussion. So with war, migration and the global food crisis, there's plenty for us to analyse this week. So thank you for joining. And be sure to follow EU Confidential wherever you get your podcasts so you can keep up with the latest on how Europe and EU leaders are responding to these challenges. If you have an idea for a topic you'd like to hear more about, you can always email us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thanks this week to our production colleague, Ellen Boonen, our editor, James Randerson, and our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. And thank you for listening. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.